Hey, what's up, you wild and wonderful weirdos? I hope you guys don't mind me calling you guys weirdos. It's just that in this day and age, if you're listening to this show, you might sometimes feel like you're a weirdo, you know? You're not lining up for a ticket to Mars. You're not all about lining up for the next wonder pill. You know how it is. So to me, we're all a bunch of wild and wonderful weirdos. So welcome, you wild and wonderful weirdo. That's kind of a tongue twister. I'm going to stop saying that because... I've got to save some energy for what we're going to talk about today, this intro, uh, me taking a pause for a week from posting anything for with the show. Uh, today's episode is on environmentalism, specifically climate change adaptation, and I thought it would be fair to my guest to uh, postpone producing or releasing, rather, this episode until, um, you know, we gave time and space for the Black Lives matter movement and I can say that I have used that time to the best of my ability to be reflexive and reflective and you know well last week was World Environment Day that was June 5th but considering what was going on I thought it would be in the best interest of all everything this show um, to not post anything so that said I'm really excited to be coming back to you guys this week with this episode because we discuss different views, different ways of knowing indigenous worldviews specific to climate change adaptation. Um, and we call attention to the importance of language as building blocks for how we come to understand the world. So in this globalized world that we live in, it is no longer the era of the West saying this is how this is done. This is a world community and we can see that in this Black Lives Black Lives Matter movement, which I think is a wonderful thing. So we get into that today. I did want to lead with at least saying I've been um, kind of engaged in a process. And uh, if you follow me on social media, you'll see that, you know, I'm posting things. But I totally realize, like many things that I try to get, a, points I try to get across on social media, uh, this isn't a Instagrammable issue. This is deeper than that. This takes grassroots movements. It takes more than reposting memes and things, and I understand that, but I mean, what's in front of our eyes, visuals and pictures, you know, sometimes have carry great weight, so I mean, I'm doing that little bit of posting and stuff like that, but really, I think there's a deeper process that I'm engaged in, and I'm going to share that with you in hopes that it benefits you in some way. Um, so, full disclosure, I am a white male, um, and I have benefited greatly from the current system. I have uh, acknowledged my privilege for some time, and there are instances in my past with black friends, black colleagues, uh, where they have said things to me where I'm at least, you know, able to wipe clean the lens um, so I can see in a different perspective. And that comes with age and the desire to learn. So what I've kind of jotted down is my process that I've thought about, that I've done um, since coming from, you know, small small town Ontario, predominantly white, I mean, 100% mainly white, um, and, you know, where, yeah, where my prejudices lie, where um, I have gaps in knowledge. So one thing I had to do first and foremost was acknowledge that there is a problem. And I think we all have to do that, acknowledge that there is a problem. Then, like all things I would do, it is listen, right? So listen to what's being said in the here and now from the narratives and the stories that are being told um, within black commun communities in your city, in your neighborhood, with black friends, uh, co-workers, and so on and so forth. We need to essentially listen to gain context, 
right? Then from there, educating, educating yourself on what you don't know and what you think you know, right? So sometimes what we think we know is wrong or has been tainted with a certain cultural lens or ethnic lens, if you will. So this is important to do if we want to acquire tools and become prepared to take action in the world. So I think that's the most important stuff is once we listen, we educate ourselves, then we acquire tools and we prepare ourselves to be in the world in a way that is servicing all and not just our own interests, right? So this is kind of, yeah, like I, to me, it's a process of becoming a global community and be, and, you know, rewriting things as we go forward. I think that's so important. So um, other things I have done and I think we'll continue to do is uh, donate. There are GoFundMe uh, accounts for the uh, Minneapolis uh, protesters who were wrongfully jailed for peaceful protesting. And if you, you know, kind of know one thing I'm big on, uh, I believe our wild soul needs and deserves a society or a system that has free speech and without free speech and autonomy over the self and being able to assemble and discuss things with one another, whether it be podcasts or down at the town square, this stuff is very important. So that's why I'm doing that. I'm not going to necessarily link that in show notes. I'll let you guys find something that I think um, that that you're called to. So that's what I'm doing. Um, You know, but I can't help but see the systemic oppression, racism, disease specifically. I mean, I see systemic disease. That's why I study health sciences and do what I do there. Um, And even systemic environmental destruction, right? In the way that we share resources and extract resources. And that specifically is what we talk about, the environmental destruction in the form of climate change. So I digress from the discussion around Black Lives Matter for the time being, but do know that I stand in solidarity with all involved in that movement, and I just want to pay my respects to the family and friends of George Floyd. And uh, yeah, this show will, I will use this platform as a voice uh, for this movement because I think it is um, no better time uh, than now for, for this and many other topics within social justice, social, excuse me, social justice and systemic oppression. Sorry about that. I'm actually uh, a little groggy this morning. I've been doing some melatonin therapy since the full moon and was slowly increasing doses in and around the full moon. So I woke up groggy today. So I've got this lovely uh, sacred tobacco that I have lit here for this intro to kind of give me a little bit of a brain boost because it's early and I've actually also kicked the caffeine habit for a couple weeks. So uh, yeah, this is uh, this is my other stimulus here right now with a little good old nicotine. But anyways, I understand that could be like annoying for you guys, the listener, listening to me smoke tobacco. So let's put that down. I want to start our discussion on environmental sciences with a disclaimer. I do not know or necessarily even believe that humans are changing climate. I do not deny climate changes or climates are changing, however. I do, you know, in fact, I hope they would considering we used to be one giant continent, right? And, you know, and the other fact is that our sun is actually growing so as nature connected rewilders we know and expect that all things 
change and part of rewilding is tracking these changes, right? So yeah, I would expect climates to change, right? So I don't know, you know, and I should say that that doesn't mean that I don't think that polluting is a horrible thing, right? And the way we're extracting and using resources for our energy, um, you know, that is very important. We talk a lot about that today. Um, I just don't know if we can change what is happening or what we have done and if what we have done has really done anything at all. So, you know, it's just kind of crazy to think here we are, we can control these types of things or ch- or change it, right? Um, I think it's kind of inevitable change that climates will change and areas will warm. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I, it does. It just makes me chuckle a little bit to think that that's that kind of patriarchal mindset that we can come in and control and change these things. So, my, dis- my suspicion is, however, that we have definitely not helped, you know, these natural cycles and processes of climate change. And that's what my gut tells me anyways. And I'm sure there is some scientific studies to prove that. Um, and, you know, the science of climate change is forever changing. And that's why I really enjoyed talking with my guest today. It was refreshing talking with Brennan because he truly understands the limits on knowledge within this field of environmental sciences, which he has studied for a very, very long time. So my guest today is a wealth of knowledge on environmental sciences and more specifically climate change adaptation. So my guest is the wild and wonderful Dr. Brennan Vogel. He is a professor in the Center for Environment and Sustainability at Western University and a professor at King's College, both in London, Ontario, Canada. His PhD looked at climate change adaptation policy in Nova Scotia, Canada, and his recent paper is what we spend the majority of our time discussing today, and it is titled Institutions, Indigenous Peoples, and Climate Change Adaptation in the Canadian Arctic. So there's so many things I love about this episode, one of which is I love that we talk about the opportunities present with the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic shutdown and how we can come back online to not, not only mitigate human greenhouse gas emissions, but also adapt industries and personal practices. Most importantly, we talk a lot about changing our mentality towards a philosophy or changing our philosophy when it comes to how humans and nature interact and the false illusion of separation, right? So yeah, we get right into the philosophy of things today, which I really do love and I really enjoy Brennan's new paper. It was great for me to read that, just given where I'm at and seeing the the marriage or the multidisciplinary uh, nature of what I'm studying, which is forest therapy and how that you know intersects with environmentalism. So yeah, it's an area that I again am very naive to, and I'm happy to have uh, Brennan's expertise here today. So definitely going to have his paper linked in the show notes um, and. There's actually another article that I want to mention in the show notes, and it shows some of the data behind uh, what, you know, the environmental changes and the uh, certain areas of the world that are seeing a, a kickback or a bounce back of, of life because of the economic shutdown. So that's really encouraging to see how just stopping the economy like this can have a huge impact. Um, so yeah, a lot of hope I know within environmental sciences as Brennan expresses here today. So he actually brings up an interesting point about this shutdown in that we're kind of stuck with capitalism, as he says, and then we have to rebuild uh, the new from parts of the old. And it seems a bit prophetic to me now because this was recorded before the protests started. And I would very much agree with that and, you know, with his statement anyways about uh, 
rebuilding off of parts of the old. So this is why I'm not always anti-capitalism. I feel like we as a species have social capital in that system and we need to know how to transform it into something that might be a little more in line with, say, indigenous thinking and philosophy in many facets of life and especially with our relationship to the earth and her resources, right? So really, really interesting point. We get into that stuff. I also want to, or I also really enjoy, I should say, how he talks about indigenous cultures leading the way for change. And we are seeing that right now here in Canada uh, with specifically the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement, as well as, you know, the indigenous, uh, all the things that have been happening with in recent years related to indigenous rights and freedoms here in Canada. Um, so we discuss food security and the high levels of dependency on centralized meat processing. And Brennan calls attention to the need for local regional governments and sovereignty over food, which I totally agree with. And, you know, I just want to reiterate and highlight here um, because, yeah, this is really important topics, I think, within rewilding. And we I share a lot of uh, our guest today's sentiment anyways in that regard. So also want to give a big shout out to Richard because uh, he was on point in this episode. He shares a wonderful story about uh, the eagle and the condor sharing the skies together again, once again. Um, and given everything that's going on in the world with the pandemic and the call for justice from the murder of George Floyd, um, again, I would say it was prophetic because this was prior to all of this happening. So I'm so grateful for Richard, as always, for being here, um, you know, and actually setting this interview up with Brennan. So thank you, Richard. Uh, and yeah, we have, you know, it's just a great conversation all around. And, you know, I think there's a lot of nuance in it, which, again, I would love to have Brennan back to kind of dive into some of this, you know, the science on climate change. And who knows, maybe even get into talking about like geoengineering and chemtrails, which I should note is something we, uh, you know, Richard and I on the tip of our tongues, uh, perhaps, but uh, yeah, we want to, you know, make sure Brennan comes back and not hit him with all these hard hitting uh, alternative questions, if you will. So anyways, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I just overall, I think it's easy to look at the economy and capitalism as the main driving force behind environmental destruction, and I would totally agree with that. But that doesn't mean it has to, all right? I guess this is the way I'm trying to wrap up my thoughts here on capitalism and climate change. I will say this, we talk about it today as well, we do need incentive to change rather than penalizing us to change with things like, you know, carbon taxes and, and such. Um you know, and whether that incentive be, you know, f flooding in our local neighborhood. So sometimes that local mindset, what happens to us, then allow, see, then we have the incentive to change because we see how it affects our environment and our economy and our society and our neighborhoods. The other way that we can, you know, get these incentives to change is that we just start to be, begin to understand that we are all one. And by caring for the earth, and all living beings were taking care of future generations' well-beings. And this is more important than profits and economic growth. And I feel like finally we are seeing what's really important by shutting down a system to protect vulnerable people, you know, a system that has grown into something that is a lot different since 1776 when Adam Smith made his inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. So the book, The Wealth of Nations, that essentially is attributed to, or Adam Smith is attributed as the father of capitalism and the free market. 
And I think that if we were to here in 2020 make that same inquiry into the nature and causes of wealth of nations, we would see a lot, we would see a system that is a lot different than what he had noticed there in 1776. So anyways, I think it is a project that is a worthy endeavor for a second edition and a remaking. I'm not the economist or the or the academic or the person or whoever to do that. But uh, anyways, we bite off little bits of that very discussion or that very idea here on this show. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Please head over to whichever platform you're listening to this podcast on and please leave a rating and review if you haven't already. I really appreciate it if you have done that already or if you have shared this show with a friend. I always say this, but you know, it is the way that other people can find this show more easily if you go in there and you actually click five stars or just leave a nice little rating or leave me feedback if you want me to improve on something. So anyways, this has been a long intro but there's been a lot going on and I guess I've had a lot to say. So without further ado, I give you the episode with Dr. Brennan Vogel. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Rewild My Bio. I am excited to be with you guys today, and my guest is Brennan Vogel, Dr. Brennan Vogel. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And I also am joined by Richard Vixinic. Good day, everyone. How's it going, Richard? Good. Good, good. Yeah, so, uh, Brennan, we're super pumped to have you here. As I had said before, Richard and I are a little naive when it comes to the whole world of environmental sciences and that, so I thought... This is a very important topic when it comes to all things rewilding and the health of our earth is very important. I mean, it's inextricable from human health and that's where Richard and I's interest lies in human health and nature connection. So perhaps you could tell us what is your personal and professional interest in environmentalism and yeah, when did your love for the natural world begin? Uh, great question. Um, I guess growing up as a country boy in southwestern Ontario, it's uh, it's kind of in my blood. Uh I, uh, I certainly grew up catching frogs and, uh, and uh, exploring the marshes and the forests uh, of, uh, of rural southern Ontario. Uh, as a child, I watched my, uh, my childhood backyard uh, uh, pond be transformed into a, a suburban development. I guess that sort of uh, sparked my initial interest in environmental thought, uh, watching how this uh, beautiful uh, wetland uh, filled with turtles and frogs and and geese and other other wild creatures uh, became uh, paved over for houses and, and roads and development. So I, I guess that uh, that very near dear personal experience of uh, sort of watching that happen and watching that happen, I guess at, at a more uh, broader scale throughout uh, southern Ontario, uh, ever ever more exp- exp- exponentially quickly. Uh, that's really uh, prompted, I guess, a lot of my personal drive around. Uh, topics related to the environment and uh, my areas of specialization related to climate change and climate change adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what exactly, uh, tell us folks, I guess, at home a little bit more about your, you had sent us over some of your papers, which we're going to get into today, but yeah, tell us a little bit about your professional interest and where your research lies mainly. 
Uh, well, uh, for over, I guess, uh, 15 years now, I've been working on topics related to climate change. And uh, climate change work is divided into two buckets. There's the mitigation bucket, which relates to the reduction of greenhouse gases, uh, activities that you can do in your home or in your transportation choices to reduce greenhouse gases that are warming the atmosphere. And the second bucket is adaptation. So this is the um, recognition that climate change is in now a foregone inevitability, and we're locked in because of the physics of the atmosphere to some pretty substantial changes in weather uh, over the next 50 to 100 years, and as far out for several hundred years to a thousand years, given the way the, the system works. Uh, and because of that, we now need to figure out ways of avoiding the harms that are uh, going to be ever more increasing a part of our reality. And we've seen that play out uh, over the last several years in particular with uh, wildfires in Australia, California, uh, flooding events in Bangladesh, you know, they're they're getting hammered with a pretty uh, severe monsoon right now in uh, Bangladesh. And that's probably one of the most vulnerable places in the world when you think about coastal issues of uh, erosion or flooding as a result of these, uh, these ever increasingly strong weather events uh, that are being driven by a warming climate. So that's where I've parked myself uh, the last 15 years or so working uh, at, at the at the, at the juncture of those two buckets, uh, the mitigation piece and the adaptation piece. Uh, and because I, in my mind, it's all adaptation now, uh, and the end goal is resilience. And so we need to adapt our energy system pretty rapidly. Uh, in Canada in particular, we're uh, global criminals when it comes to carbon pollution um, because of uh, our northern latitudes, but also because of some of the poor uh, choices available for us in terms of transportation, in terms of the way we heat our buildings and so on. So there's lots of opportunities, particularly now with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic recovery that's uh, being hotly talked about in policymaking circles. There's a lot of opportunities to double up and, uh, and explore the solutions-oriented approaches to adapting to the inevitable realities of, uh, of climate change and the need for building resilient social and biophysical systems to deal with some of these uh, these inevitabilities. You know, it's, you talked about a couple of really interesting things there, and I'll put a pin in, in the COVID-19 piece because to hear that that's even being talked about as far as policy and what can we do to kind of, um, you know, mitigate or adapt to greenhouse gases and climate change, I think that's something that, we, yeah, we definitely want to talk about today. But the piece that I really didn't know too much about, and again, I guess uh, show, showcasing my naiveness, is that, uh, yeah, the adaptation piece, and that really falls in line with a kind of a rewilding lens as opposed to this kind of go in and control this mess that we created or, you know, whatever, which we'll talk about that here too. But um, yeah, the adaptation piece, I see it as more of a, a synergistic way to look at climate change because we're seeing our interaction, uh, you know, synergistically with, with the environment. And yeah, from a rewilding standpoint, that's essentially it. We're just constantly in feedback from nature. So I see this as much more synergistic as opposed to uh, separatist and trying to control anyways. Yeah. Philosophically, it's a much more interesting way to think about environmental problem solving. Um, because the issue that you run into when you have this focus on okay, climate change is an energy use problem and we need to just change our energy use and reduce our greenhouse gases. And if we do that, then we're, we're gonna be okay. And certainly that's a major part of it. But there's this far deeper part of it that has to do with the relationship that we have with the environment fundamentally to begin with. 
And if you look around the world at examples of cultures that have sustained themselves for thousands of years without effing up the environment, it's because they have that built into their cultural worldview. And we see that in indigenous cultures in Canada, you know, the, the respect that is innate in the culture for the environment has contributed to, you know, an ability to sustain themselves without overexploiting these resources, particularly on the West Coast, where there were some of the highest densities of indigenous people in, in, the, in the new world at the time of uh, colonization. They had been living in harmony with nature, not overexploiting those resources for thousands of years. And certainly it's, uh, you know, it's an apples to orange comparison when you start to think about how and why that existed uh, in a different way than maybe European culture. But I think it does, you know, speak to the nature of your, of your program here that there are these more fundamental philosophical underlying building blocks that we need to be particularly now exploring as a, as a means of expanding our consciousness uh, at the individual level in terms of our relationship with the environment and how we can play a part in making things at least not worse and hopefully better. Uh, but then uh, more regionally and globally in terms of uh, some of the solidarity that's going to be, uh, that's going to have to happen if we're going to confront this challenge. Yeah, so that, that really rings, reading your, your latest uh, publication or paper that you put out, um, because f- for me, it's always like climate change and we're kind of using uh, this terminology of like, well, yeah, the climate does change. It always has changed. And that is one of those arguments against, well, what are we doing all this for? Because the climate changes anyways and blah, 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 blah right? Mm-hmm. All that. Um, this adaptive piece and sort of the work that you put out recently really I found helpful in that it's yeah, it's shifting that dialogue to this idea of adaptation, right? It's it's happening. How much we influence it, uh, you know, one scientist may say that, another one may say this, but we know it's shifting, and we know we have to adapt, right? And that does require a consciousness shift. So something like carbon taxation, for example, which I think is a real well, I know is a hot button topic for people, and I think it's really divisive in and around this issue of adapting to climate change because you know you're either for or against attacks and if if you're against attacks you are a climate denier or all that stuff gets flown flown around right and yeah it's really about well what's the dialogue here about adaptation because something like taxation for example is it's kind of based on a punitive approach right you did this wrong we're going to punish you with a tax which does not embrace a holistic indigenous view of like adapting and not working this sort of patriarchal model. And so I really appreciate that your paper really starts to tease out the need for both of these kind of considerations, right? A a reductionist piece and an adaptive piece. I think on the topic of climate change, um, and I'll just speak from my own perspective here, there's sort of there's sort of a existential crisis that you encounter when you think about the issue. Because it's very easy to fall into feelings of guilt and helplessness because it's an overwhelming issue. You don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. And you're being penalized by the government for just engaging in what you believe to be normal activities, driving your car, heating your house, and you're now having to pay more for that. And you have not, you know, benefited from any kind of environmental education provided at really any level of government substantially and in a sustained way, uh, this has all really been driven by popular discourse, right? Like we haven't seen that. There was a study done last year 
evaluating climate change education at the provincial level across Canada and most provinces failed abysmally in terms of integrating these issues, the science of climate change, the mm -hmm. social science of climate change uh, at an early level. And it's not a hard problem really to wrap your head around here. It has to do with the, the energy that we choose to use to perform the functions that we need to perform to have uh, our, our basic needs met, right? So how we feed ourselves, how we heat ourselves, how we clothe ourselves, how, how, we, how we house ourselves, all of these things have implications for energy use. It's the type of energy use that matters. And for a long time now, for over 100 years, we've had a system that's heavily dependent on the exploitation of a non-renewable resource. And that is running out now. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're ever being driven to pursue more, um, more exploration and uh, extraction of this resource to the point of which it's ridiculous that, uh, you know, for a few years there anyways, it, uh, the Alberta oil sand, tar sand project was, uh, you know, seemed to be a profitable investment. It's no longer the case that that is so, right? Like it, the only reason that that thing uh, existed as long as it did is because it was being heavily subsidized by government. Uh, all that to say that, uh, you know, it does get overwhelming. So how do you then uh, approach this problem in a way that um, you can grasp onto something and find, uh, you know, an entry point? And I think it has to do with the incentives. Yeah. You know, you can't be penalized into changing. You can yeah. be incentivized into changing. Though. Exactly. And yeah. if you provide incentive structures that allow people to become educated first and foremost about what the problem is mm -hmm. and why it's a problem, why they should care about it. You know, my PhD looked at the experience of Nova Scotia municipalities. Once that capacity was raised, they were educated and engaged by higher levels of government. Uh, then they were okay with this, a mandatory imposition of, okay, municipal governments, now you need to look at the risks and the uncertainties that you're going to have to inevitably deal with anyways because of climate change. Uh, you know, the denial and all of that's out of the way. Everybody buys in, particularly when you live in a place that's so vulnerable. And it's been clearly illustrated by historic events such as uh, Hurricane Juan out there, how vulnerable they are. You know, they lost power for two weeks in Nova Scotia in the year 2003, right? That, yeah, right. that changes you. Just like this pandemic is changing people's behaviors and thoughts about right. what society might be. Well, it's the same thing with extreme weather events. Once you have that, you know, that uh, focusing event happen and that, that window of opportunity is then presented to change. So Nova Scotia is the only province in Canada that's done anything at a provincial scale to regulate land use uh, to deal with climate change uh, at that provincial scale. And we're seeing it now in other places, but it's, it's pretty shocking and appalling that it's taken that long to get around to these mandatory approaches to dealing with the risk side of things, let alone the greenhouse gas side of things, right? Like that's a whole other kettle of worms. I alluded to some of the complicated things that you know we have a natural resource-based economy and a northern latitude right so we have to square that circle somehow and create uh, other opportunities for changing our uh, energy consumption behaviors well there's but a couple just, sorry go ahead yeah no i i, I could go on and on and my, i'll just finish that thought is that you don't need to look any farther than a place like norway or finland or sweden that are you know capable of having something of a pet petroleum industry but also doing their part to reduce greenhouse gases at the same time and I think you touched on a few interesting points there for me, a little bit about that scaling down climate adaptation initiatives, right? instead of sort of the um, blaming big industry and 
government and then expecting the government to do everything to fix it, right? How do we, it's got to be, I don't feel like it's going to be a top-down approach exclusively, certainly not, but I wonder how much at all, but sort of the ground up approach. And so how do we scale that, that down? So your one paper looked at Nova Scotia as an example and how that started to filter into municipal things. Is there any sort of uh, examples you can give in that scenario that, you know, might be translatable or people can chew on? You know, what we're dealing with in terms of a pandemic response right now is tantamount to the dry run to what we need to be doing Mm. to deal with climate change. It is fundamentally transforming the system in short order to respond to a crisis situation. And that's what we're steering the barrel down here. We've got less than 10 years to half the greenhouse gas footprint of Canada. And that it means transforming building energy systems, transforming transportation systems fundamentally, and getting away from the tar sands as a you know, building block of the Canadian economy. And in, in order to do that, you then have to have the leadership and the policy incentives and then the regulation structures to get everybody on board. And you're going to get a lot more people on board when you make it personal, right? And so when you have incentive structures at the local scale where people can say, oh, I guess if I have a, you know, a low interest or a no interest loan that the local government's going to backstop for me, and then they're going to provide services to get people into my house to get me off of natural gas and onto air source heat pumps or whatever it takes, you know, and that's going to create a lot of jobs and it's going to drive the local economy and it's going to help people, uh, you know, feel good about themselves for doing something for the environment. And it's going to reduce their energy usage bills in the longer term right now, because it's an artificial market uh, where we have natural gas being provided at, you know, bottom of the barrel prices. That's not what it costs to produce that stuff though. It's Mm -hmm. the only artificially cheap because of government subsidy. Right. But it's really that type of uh, transformative thinking, I guess, that I see as the, the, the learning and opportunity of this pandemic. Uh, I certainly hope it's just not going to go back to, doodly dumb hum diddly do uh, you know like let's have some shovel ready projects and uh you know continue on down the uh the path of uh destruction i, I think yeah. that it's, it's it's high time to just get on with doing these things but it's you know it's a lot easier said than done yeah and i guess sure. what makes me uneasy is um yeah there's sort of we're seeing some of the responses in covid to this COVID thing being pretty, um, you know, some might say extreme and uh, we're reactionary. Let's say that's a better word, right? And so it would be good to avoid a reactionary approach to our adaptation to climate change. Right? We'd kind of want to be proactive and we might have missed the boat on that one to a certain degree. Um, but it's finding that that space between initiation but also like the 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 catastrophic and the and the fear-based like stuff right because that doesn't help us make good decisions so how do we how do we find that and and i think your paper touches on a little bit in terms of touching into indigenous world views of adaptation not modeling thing like this reductionist let's create these models of what we think is going to happen in 10 years and shit ourselves about it and make reactionary choices how do we blend that with an adaptive model of 
as you state in your paper, about indigenous ways of thinking and interacting and adapting as things come. Like, how, what does that feel yeah. like to you? What does that look like? Well, for me, I mean, it, it was a process of unlearning to write that paper because uh, if you look at the other papers that I've written, it was, you know, very sort of, uh, you know, uh, boundaries of governance and policy making incentives and framing and these you know these ideas around um the stochastic model of uh you know x in y out of government but that's not what's required to solve climate change that that's a part of what's required but it's this this deeper piece about capacity to deal with some of these issues to begin with and in the in inuit worldview you know, the, it's in the language. They have these whole series of principles that have been developed uh, over time that have allowed them to have respectful relationships with each other and with the environment. And uh, because they have that as an innate building block of their culture, you know, it's been a pretty significant contributor to allowing them to adapt and thrive and survive in one of the most like harsh and difficult environments in the world, right? So that, you know, I would call that social capital, you know, in these small hunter gatherer groups, they were able to, you know, have these values and principles, uh, you know, imbued into the relationships that they had with each other that allowed for this trust and social capital to exist at that level, that then allowed them to thrive and adapt to really harsh situations. They also didn't have Western science to muddle their brains up. You know, <laughs> to make them afraid about what's going to happen in 20, 30 years. And in fact, it's seen as a taboo, uh, I think, in traditional culture to put too much emphasis on trying to predict the future because you don't know what the future is going to bring. And in fact, the actions that you take today are going to have a direct relationship uh, when you speak on climate change to what the future is going to look like. That's part of what it makes it so insidious, right? right? Is that like it's a it's a hundred year time lag. We're not doing this uh, necessarily for ourselves, but we are doing it for our grandchildren. Right. And that is a fundamentally different way of thinking about actions and choices than what drives most of Western society, which is me first and the gimme gimme's. Right. Like the yeah, selfish worldview that we've been uh, we've been accultured by the capitalist economy with and everything else. So, you know, like these are uh, these are some of the more philosophical, challenging bits of climate change. Uh, but, yeah, we've got to walk and chew gum at the same time. And we're stuck with capitalism and we're stuck with governments the way that they are and so you know i think uh, some people some anarchists have some some said some some have said to me in the past uh, you kind of have to rebuild the uh, new system by using the bits of the old that are existing so that's i think where we're at now and uh there's a lot of opportunity i think uh, particularly on issues of food security and issues of energy security like that those are the those are the places to to put your chips on in terms of uh Recovering the economy, moving forward, building self-sufficiency, resiliency, uh, positive change that, by the way, is going to help us deal with climate change as well. So, And I think participatory action research, like you say, getting individuals involved who have, you know, stakeholders at that grassroots level, that seems to be the way to go forward. So we're, we're starting to touch on that paper now. So maybe let's, let's dive into that because I had a few questions on that. So maybe I'd, I'd first start off with just maybe, uh, so your recent 
paper was published in uh, GeoJournal, and it's titled Institutions, Indigenous Peoples, and Climate Change Adaptation in the Arctic. I will have that linked in the show notes for folks if they want to read it. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about what led to this paper. Um, like you said, it was something different for you for your work. So what was the purpose of it? And uh, yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, sure. Well, um, the uh, long and meandering road of an academic uh, often leads you down uh, various uh, side trails, uh, uh, sometimes leading you to new new areas of research and uh, discovery. So for myself, I finished my PhD uh, in 2016, and then I postdoced uh, working on a national project looking at marine emergency response. I built a map-based database uh, looking at uh, promoting education around uh, some of the research happening in Canadian universities on that. Uh, at the same time as that project was wrapping up, I connected with the Canada Research Chair in Human and Environment Interactions at the University of Winnipeg, a, a colleague named Dr. Ryan Bollock, uh, who has focused his uh, research efforts on looking at sustainable forestry in the boreal uh, and working with Indigenous groups on issues of climate change, including renewable energy development. And uh, he happened to have a, a research grant uh, opportunity uh, through the, funnily enough, the Department of National Defense, the Canadian Forces, uh, to look at some novel uh, approaches to dealing with issues of significance to the Canadian military in the uh, northern latitudes of Canada. So we put together this, uh, this proposal looking at opportunities for exploring collaborations between Indigenous people, the Inuit, and the Canadian uh, military in the north of Canada. And we got about 10% of the funding that we asked for, <laughs> which uh, made it into a desk-based project and not so much as uh, into the, uh, the hoped uh, field research project that uh, had been anticipated in the proposal. But nevertheless, uh, you got to start somewhere and you never know where you'll turn up. So over the last couple of years, I've been working with Dr. Bullock uh, on this side project to get this piece of, uh, this piece of research done. And so we, uh, we looked at systematically at uh, a lot of the literatures related to Indigenous uh, knowledge and climate change adaptation in the Canadian Arctic. And uh, there's a rich scholarship of uh, Canadian geographers that have worked on those things uh, over the last 20 years, notably Barry Schmidt from the uh, University of Guelph Department of Geography. He's now Professor Emeritus, but he is actually the... Uh, the professor that is credited with defining climate change adaptation back in uh, the year 2000 in one of those IPCC documents back then. And uh, he spawned, uh, spawned a whole school of thought of uh, indigenous climate change adaptation oriented scholarship uh, out of the University of Guelph. So there's there's lots of papers that have been written over the years. Uh, James Ford now at the, I think he's at um, the University of East Anglia or you, you might have to edit this part out or double check it. Anyways, uh, he's since left Canada. He was at the Department of Geography at McGill. He's since left, but he's probably one of the most uh, prolific uh, prolific scholars on these topics. So we took all of this existing research and we tried to consolidate it and uh, boil it down to some of the finer points of, uh, of interest for efforts of uh, institutions, uh, including the military, uh, that seek to support climate change adaptation efforts in the Arctic. And as I said, it was a bit of a, an eye-opening experience to get into some of the research here, because once you start looking at worldview and the importance of language uh, as a shaping, you know, the shaping tools that we have to understand reality, you know, the English-speaking world is greatly limited in its mm. uh, abilities to look at some of the finer points of what 
what supports effective climate change adaptation. And as I said, it's these uh, these principles uh, of of social capital uh, that are encapsulated in the traditional worldview of the the Inuit people. Um, uh, the acronym is IQ. I'm not going to try to pronounce this word, but uh, it is this idea that you have uh, values and and cultural principles uh, that support and underlie all of the decisions that you're taking, including the way in which you relate to other people and the way in which you relate to the, the animals that you depend on and the environment that you depend on to sustain you. And I think that was the point of, uh, of interest that I, th I found really um, quite compelling um, because in Canada, we have Nunavut, which has uh, since 1999 been uh, Canada's only uh, indigenous governed territory. Uh, it's one fifth of the Canadian landmass, though. One fifth wow. of the Canadian landmass is in is is in that territory. Uh, so some very significant future issues will be uh, decided uh, about uh, about things like Arctic shipping, about uh, you know the future of uh, oil and gas exploration exploration in that part of the world as the sea ice recedes, um, and uh, and then you have this governance system. Uh, for that one fifth of the Canadian landmass, it is looking at environmental problem solving using traditional worldview and values, right? Like they have an indigenous uh, council of elders that they consult on before a lot of the decisions that they make uh, in some of their environmental uh, department of environment uh, of Nunavut uh, decision making processes. So, and this is all just captured through literature review. So I haven't done any of the interviews or the field work. I was hoping to go to Iqaluit before all of this uh, COVID stuff happened. I had the paper accepted for uh, presentation up there, but it all kind of fell apart. Unfortunately, uh, I will be presenting at the Environmental Studies Association of Canada uh, webinar online uh, 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 next week. Uh, so looking forward to an opportunity to discuss it there. So one thing we're talking about, yeah, worldviews, we're talking about sort of the, the Western industrial sort of approach thing, and then an adaptive model and an indigenous understanding of how we interrelate with our planet or our immediate ecosystems and so it's almost like okay we need this consciousness shift and then that can kind of start to get a little esoteric or, or right existential it's like okay what do we do with that so that that council of elders is a really good example and, and none of it is a good example in how we can sort of tease kind of step away from that existential piece and put it into something actionable Right? And so Council of Elders is a really wonderful model or the, the, the indigenous peacemaking model and having the circle where all parties come together that have a vested interest in this. You're talking about the shipping, you're talking about forestry, you're talking about hunting and fishing and gathering, you're talking about all these different interests coming to the table. Um, but there's ceremony involved. There's coming in in a grounded way to have a discussion and everyone has the opportunity to speak and have their voice heard. And there is a, there are a chief or an elder who is not the rubber stamp, but is the facilitator, right? So I see that as a really um, great opportunity to say, oh, yeah, th these are some things that we can start to invite into the process that are actually uh, incredibly necessary if we're going to have any hope of moving forward in a, in a progressive way. And, and looking at this, it was kind of cool. I did a quick Google search and there is actually um, sort of a hybrid approach of peacemaking and 
more that Western concept of mediation when it comes to certain things like treaties, et cetera, and how, how we can apply that maybe to some of these processes in the Arctic and Nunavut and moving forward with uh, adaptation to climate change initiatives. And I feel like that's encouraging at the very least. Yeah, I can say I, I'm very encouraged. Uh, over the last several months, uh, I had the opportunity to go to Vancouver for the Adaptation Canada Conference 2020. They happen every four years, and I was in Ottawa four years ago for that one. Uh, so uh, there was a huge Indigenous presence at that conference in BC, partially probably because it was in BC. But I went to as many of those presentations uh, from the Indigenous people as I could. And, you know, it's very encouraging because what we're talking about is is happening in many communities across Canada. They're not waiting for handouts. They are doing it themselves. And they're doing it for cultural revitalization reasons. They're doing it for environmental reasons. They're doing it for basic needs. So I guess, uh, I guess just to summarize, you know, whether it's an indigenous group or a local community or a city council, we, start, we have to start looking at solutions to climate change at that level of government. Because it's really where, you know, you have the opportunity to do tangible things that are going to raise people's awareness and education around why uh, we should care uh, a little bit more about regional food security, given mm -hmm. the fact that 80% of our food, for example, is imported from California. And guess what? They're running out of water and it's a highly vulnerable region right. to the impacts of climate change, wildfires, etc. So uh, we live in one of the most agriculturally productive regions of the world. There is no reason why we could not be uh, examining better utilization of the resources that we have here. And in fact, it's really discouraging. Part of all this COVID uh, is to see the massive amounts of food waste that is being created uh, at the same time that you're having people struggling to put food on the table because of the inefficiencies of the food system that we're stuck with here, where you have high levels of dependency, you know, on the meat packing, we've got three uh, meat processing plants in Canada, three of them, three, three major meat, yeah. mo meat processing plants in Canada, you know, and that's, if that's not a cause for concern around some of these right. things of the need to relocalize our economies to start looking at uh, the, the opportunities for job creation and the, you know, the spinoff effects for the environment in terms of the reduction of the food miles, uh, the pollution associated with transporting food all that distance to put it on the table, et cetera, et cetera. So, we need to be having that more local regional approach uh, and we need to be looking at, I guess, the bootstrapping method uh, uh, and hopefully the lobbying method of supporting, getting support from higher levels of government to, to deal with some of these issues that, uh, that, are, that are coming down. Well, I hope we kind of zoom out. I think this, this uh, pandemic has allowed us to see the interconnectivity of all these things, right? The veil has been lifted on the, you know, the ridiculousness that is three meat processing plants in one of the geographically largest countries in the world. Like, um, without a doubt, we need to kind of zoom out from the local mindset. And, and you were saying, just like with the folks in Nova Scotia, they have experienced this themselves viscerally. They know what it's like to experience uh, climate change. So they're, they're taking action. But I guess, uh, and this is where my hope comes for, I guess I'm just hopeful that because of this, we see that we're interconnected and we realize that, yes, we all have to take action here for climate change if we want to change something going forward. Yeah, I, so. And a lot of it is just about remembering, you know, some of the wisdom of uh, previous generations. I feel like there's been a bit of a, you know, a, a memory loss that's happened over the last couple of generations uh, where we've lost touch with some of these just fundamental building blocks of uh, 
living in a way uh, that's suitable to the environment, you know? And like, if you look at architecture in Nova Scotia, when they built houses there 200 years ago, they did not build them beside the ocean. Why didn't they do that? Because the wind will blow it down and the waves will wash it away. You build your house away from the ocean. You don't put windows on the, the windward side of your, your house. You put it on the south facing side of the house so that the sun shines and heat your house all day. And that's what you do, you know? Like these are just sort of basic things that for some reason we don't, uh, seem to have carried over into the ways in which we plan because uh, we're just in a rush or being driven by the bottom, uh, m m the bottom dollar or whatever it right. is, right? But uh, so whether it's you know like the traditional ways of s surviving here as a settler colonial, or whether it's looking more fundamentally at these cultural worldviews uh, that were indigenously held here in the first place, I think that like this is the opportunity of this generation now is to be you know guarding and protecting that and paying it forward to the future generations because i think these are the types of things that are going to be more and more valuable as time goes on um i i'm not a te techno optimist i don't think technology is going to save the day uh if we do manage to leave the planet it's not everybody that's going to get that golden ticket right. to mars you right. know like yeah. so for so for the, all those reasons you know i think there's a lot a value uh, to be held in, in in looking at some of these more traditionally held understanding of uh, human environment. And, and that sort of brings in the, there is a prophecy from some of the communities in the Amazon that speaks of the eagle and the condor. I don't know if you've heard this one. So basically, uh, at one point, the eagle and the condor flew together in the same skies. And about 500 years ago, 1490 or so, the eagle started to take over, right? And almost killed off the, the condor. And so the eagle is representative of that masculine movement due sort of the Western scientific reductionist mind, if you want to call it that. And then the condor almost went extinct. But the prophecy says that in 500 years, a new cycle will start where they will be able to start flying together in the sky again. And the condor being the feminine, the intuitive, the adaptive, all these things we're kind of alluding to. Um, and so we're right at the beginning of that cycle in that prophecy of the condor and the eagle being able to co-inhabit the skies again. But prophecy does not mean guarantee we the, the the energies whatever way you want to look at it what gave them the information for to come out with this prophecy i don't understand i don't know the cosmo cosmology of it all but right now we're ripe in that ripe moment to to use those energies and to facilitate that coming together and the eagle and the condor sharing the sky but it is up to us to make it happen and so that's back to your point it's like this is this is a challenge of this generation and those following to really so yeah i'm not gonna sort of expect to be on elon musk's uh space bus to the moon necessarily to save my butt right but there are probably some technological <laughs> things that can help us through this adaptation piece yeah in no ways am i promoting a, a luddite existence here you know don't get me wrong no. you know the inuit need and depend on weather forecasting and the ability to predict future change as much as anybody else does 
particularly since it's no longer a hunter-gatherer culture. They've been uh, put into communities, uh, uh, you know, uh, place-based communities where they have to deal with these issues. You know, uh, historically, they didn't have to do that. They could just pack up and move to the next place, right? It was less of an issue. But where you're looking at this coexistence of these different cultures and these different worldviews, Albert Marshall called it two-eyed seeing. This idea where you can have adaptive co-management happening of environmental systems by looking at the problem through those two different lenses, you know, and I guess there's been some debate about whether that's been just co-opted by the Western reductionist uh, way of, you know, thinking just as a, you know, a, a lip service to the, the inclusion of the indigenous voice. But I think if you take it, you know, uh, you take it at face value and you think about it in a sincere and genuine way. That's really what we're faced with now is, and that is a process of unlearning for Western people. You know, that is a process of recognizing your privilege and recognizing your place, not just in Canada, but in the world as, you know, we have the world laid at our feet. We do in terms of the choices that we have, even with pandemic circumstances, you know, you can sit at home, you can order Amazon all day long, you can do all this stuff. And you are, we are as a society, very bubbled and very sheltered from a lot of the harsh realities of the things that that other people in other places of the world, and even in our own country, are having to deal with as a result of uh, not just uh, pandemics, but environmental, you know, racism and environmental, you know, uh, other issues of social justice. So, right. Um, yeah, I yeah. digress. Our, yeah, no, our uh, consumer nature, I think, sometimes just you know, against that local mindset, we don't we don't realize that you know to have green beans year-round here in Canada, that means somebody in a country from the south is most likely working for most likely an, an unfair wage or, or not comparable anyways. So, uh, and again, yeah, we uh, were given this time, I think, to all hit pause. And then, yeah, again, see see how uh, how privileged we really are up here. You're right. So very much well said. We're kind of chatting about the, yeah, well, I kind of want to touch base on that because that was a question we both had about uh, – the current situation with the economic shutdown. And I'm just curious, yeah, is there any like actual data showing that things have, let's say, greened up over the last little bit? Because we've seen, you know, sea life coming back to the canals in Italy. We've seen clear skies, pictures and things like that. But is there actually any, yeah, data that kind of supports this? Yeah, there is. It's, uh, it's, it's, I think it still will take time to substantiate whether it has any long-term effect on bending the curve of climate change. I don't think it is. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a bit of an, an, an anomaly. Uh, I guess the, uh, the analog uh, for discussion would be the 2008 financial crisis. Um, that was the most substantial reduction in greenhouse gases in Canada anyways. Uh, and it was as a result of that downturn in the economy and uh, the downturn in particular in the tar sands. Um, so it was by no means as a result of government policy making. But if you want to know the thing that reduced greenhouse gases the most in historically in Canada, that's what it was. It was wow. the 2008 financial crisis. Um, unfortunately, any gains that were made from that were undone subsequently by, you know, the hand over fist subsidies that went into uh, bailing out oil corporations and, and getting things back on track with pipelines and so on. Um, so the data that I've seen, you know, I've seen the, uh, the aerial photographs the different satellite photographs uh, showing the reduction in air pollution and uh, so like that's the local uh, more immediate uh, result of uh, you know uh, self-quarantine reduction in travel all those sorts of things it's the reduction in local particulate matter right so the 
the things that cause asthma, smog, uh, those kinds of things in China, the things that cleared up skies over China. Um, that's what it was, you know, the shutdown of the transportation system and the shutdown of manufacturing, uh, all those particulates going down, uh, leading to that reduction in local air pollution and local health effects of that. And that in and of itself kills tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people a year, right? Like right, we're yeah, all concerned yeah. about a virus, but you know, air pollution kills people all the time. So, um, it's just not as obvious until you turn off, uh, turn off the engines. Right. Yeah. So, um, so there's that. Uh, I, in terms of carbon dioxide, I've heard it's uh, seven to seventeen percent, or the headlines that I've seen. But I've not really delved too deeply into that. So you could imagine, with particularly the downturn of the global aviation industry, they're one of the worst in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. A lot of it has to do with the fact that those emissions are going straight into the atmosphere. There's no opportunity for sequestration at the ground level. Right, like that's how the cycle works. The trees draw down that carbon, hold it in the soil, uh, uh, or into the ocean uh, through uh, phytoplankton and so on. Uh, so, anyways, with the global airline industry being shut down, that's a significant contributor to the reduction in global greenhouse gases. But um, it's it's like trying to turn the Titanic. Titanic, that's what we're dealing with here. Like mm. the dice are loaded against us. It's a hundred year time lag. Uh, the effects of climate change that we're dealing with now are as a result of the pollution from 100 years ago, not the pollution that we're putting out there now. It's the pollution from the 100 years ago. So that buildup of carbon over time, you know, it takes 100 years for that carbon to move through the system. And, uh, and you know, so we are, the more carbon that we put into the system now, the worse the effects of it are going to be later. And that's the, the hard part, I think. Um, and often why you get this, this, uh, you know, we had a, we had some cold weather this spring. We had snow in Ontario, Southern Ontario, two weeks ago. You know, then you get the, oh, well, climate change is not real. We're getting snow. Well, we're getting snow in Southern Ontario because it's historic warm temperatures in the Arctic, displacing all the cold air masses further to the Southern latitudes. So uh, that's climate change. Right. Uh, the warming is happening somewhere else, but the change we're experiencing here. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're asking about, Right. branding of the problem well that that sort of speaks to it right like it's it's a an ambient warming on a on a centuries long time scale um but the effects of it are more acute and um and uh the attribution of any one effect it's more in terms of probabilities in terms of, of uh, saying well if you continue to release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere it's going to have this insulating effect which is going to trap more water vapor in the atmosphere. More water vapor in a warmer atmosphere is going to lead to more things like hurricanes and these other extreme weather events that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I guess I was just coming around to saying that it's 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 uh, correlation, it's not causation, but that's right. where the science is at, is that it's pretty substantial correlationship between right. the anthropogenic process of uh, atmospheric forcing is what it's called in the scientific literature um, and the implications of climate change, which are extreme weather events, sea level rise, melting ice, and so on. So, yeah, thanks. No, thanks for that. And that's as I was saying before we even got on the call. Is like, yeah, I wanted to kind of get into those mechanisms and kind of very elementary level as to what exactly is happening with climate change. Because as you said, it's you know I I, I heard that myself uh, when it snowed there a few weeks ago. Is that oh you know what's this global warming? But I think it's just not necessarily as well understood in, for the layperson, anyways. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, 
but the hotter days are getting hotter. Uh, I, I like to say for Canada, if you want to take it in a nutshell, it's warmer, wetter, and wilder or stormier, right? So those are the things that we can expect uh, in Canada. Uh, there's already been more than three degrees of warming over the last uh, 50 to 70 years in the Western Canadian Arctic. So that's some of the most extreme climate change in the world has already happened there. So there's melting permafrost, Tuktoyaktuk is losing its shorelines. Um, you know, the indigenous people don't trust the sea ice anymore. Uh, it requires a lot more thought in terms of uh, food procurement, you know, in that part of the world, right. there's no grocery stores for a lot of people up there. Uh, they depend on the country food still. So, yeah. And I can say that I actually have experienced climate change and I think about it and, and it's the one that you had said there is the storms or the wild weather. And, uh, thinking of where I grew up in, uh, you know, Canada's most Southern town, we never had tornadoes as a, as a kid. And now it's like every summer we're getting tornadoes touched down in the area. And, that, and it's, it's just, uh, it's quite unpredictable and quite scary too. So. Yeah, that's right. So the, the uncertainties and the risks, um, you know, again, speaks to the importance of these precautionary principles. Uh, you know, the indigenous people speak of the making decisions on seven generations, you know, those philosophical aspects that we were talking about earlier. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we need to be thinking about that in all facets, right? The ways in which we build things, the ways in which we place things, and it just, all it, the things. Yeah. Sorry, I yeah, know it's very much a worldview, and you had said before, and I think it's how many times on the show, Richard, have we said or a guest has said that the English language doesn't do a good job at addressing a certain problem that we just don't have a we don't have a frame of mind for it. We don't have don't even have words to to speak towards it, right? So it does take it's this paradigm shift, and I think your story of the eagle and the condor flying together are kind of showing that shift and the desire to increase vocabulary and have discussion across the board, multidisciplinary um, with folks so that we can actually start to communicate about these things and, and move forward uh, together so that we're planning for the future. Well, and to have that vocabulary, you have to have experience. Yeah. So nature-related experience, as an example, we talk a lot about on this show is rewilding your biography, your biology, getting in touch with nature, which is kind of hilarious because we are nature, right? So there isn't that dichotomy, but that nature literacy, that nature connectedness, uh, the knowing and feeling the interrelatedness. It feels like mother earth is we've lost on a bigger scale. We've lost that connection, right? I mean, I have it personally, but a lot of people don't. And, and as a society, we've, we've lost it quite considerably. And so mother nature is kind of like, knocking louder and louder. It's like, oh, you forgot about our connection, smacking us with the tornado saying, see how we're connected? You need a tornado to mm -hmm. reinitiate your experience. How or a we... pandemic to send you to your room to think about what you've done, Richard. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is... <laughs> kind of feel Mother like nature that. is not yeah, happy. No, you're no. basically right. That's yeah. a really good one. And so how do, you know, it's like bringing it back down, the bottom-up approach. You know, that's... That's my shtick, bottom-up approach, resilience with from the individual to the community to the lower levels of governance, smaller levels of governance, right? That's where I feel like at least empowered. Yeah. You know? If I could, I'd just like to read the translated principles that we were talking about. I know we've kind of Please, come yeah. around to things here, but I think, it's, I think it's helpful to just kind of round out what you're saying there. So yeah. Uh, there's a little paragraph in the in the article, and please, I hope you'll make it available to your listeners. For um, sure. But uh, these principles, you know, they may not seem directly related to environmental, um, you know, preservation, conservation, sustainability. But I think in terms of the social capital 
that they really do uh, matter. So it's things like uh, having a, a service mindset, serving others, uh, building consensus in groups, not just pushing ahead with whatever your priorities might be, but taking that time to build up a consensus, consensus. having respect for people's differences, acquiring and improving knowledge and skills through practice, uh, cooperation uh, and working together harmoniously with a common purpose, acting as environmental stewards with holistic understanding of the consequences of actions and intentions, problem solving through uh, creative innovation and improvisation. That one I really like. I think that one's really cool because I kind of do that just like for fun anyways, <laughs> in all kinds of ways. Uh, acting as guardians of shared resources, respecting others' knowledge and experiences, taking only what is necessary and not wasting resources such as food, avoiding causing unnecessary harm to animals, accepting the myth of private property through grounded acknowledgement that no one can truly own land or animals so as to avoid conflict. That one's like brilliant. Right. And as previously noted, uh, treating all beings with respect. Yeah. So See, I think those are, those are like, if we had a society that was premised and built on that shared set of values, think how different things might be, right? Yeah. Especially right now. It's, it just sounds like each one of those is like, yes, please. We could use a whole, a whole whack of all that for sure. Without yeah. a doubt. Well, um, we're getting closer to the hour mark here, but I guess, uh, Richard, I want to know, do you have any, any further questions on what we've talked about here? I know well, actually, no, you know I, what? I think, well, I, I, that really lays it out succinctly, right? In terms of, here's a clear list of things that resonate, are rational, are intuitive, they make sense, but, right? We still need the consciousness shift mm -hmm. to actually integrate those pieces. Right? And so these dialogues facilitate that. So I'm going to um, propose a solution. Yeah. <laughs> that the government, the big government's role should be conscription. You know, like military conscription back mm -hmm. in the day. Right. But as opposed to sending us to the army, we either got to go on a massive hike through the, in the Pacific Trail when we turn 18 mm -hmm. or go tree planting. Yep. Or maybe JT, Justin Trudeau, sends every 18-year-old two to five grams of psilocybin and everyone <laughs> understands nature-relatedness on a dime. And there you go. Right. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. Well, well J JT's dad was the one that started um, Katimovic. Remember Katimovic? No, what's that? Mm -hmm. That was uh, that was like a, a year-long youth exchange program for youth across Canada. Oh. And you could sign up for this thing and you'd volunteer and all your costs were covered. Uh, you get a small monthly stipend, I think, for participating, but you're grouped together with youth from all over Canada and you're put into a community and you work community service as, a, as your day job. And some people stayed home, baked bread and fed others, served others and others went out and they did the work and they would go to three different communities across Canada. And that went on for, you know, like 30, 30 or more years. And that was a pure Trudeau. <laughs> creation wow, i know lots of people who worked in that or like had experiences i never did myself i lived across the street from a katima big house so in halifax and i often went to their parties it was a lot of fun oh wow that is interesting um and i was kind of joking about <laughs> hey well the literature supports that 100 percent there richard yeah, yeah, major really major really yeah you're not far off yeah you got a future in policy making well yeah, yeah right well that's just it richard richard's always here on the show 
providing practical tips that we can individually do to, you know, increase control over our health and herbs and all sorts of great That's right. practices. That's he's he's right. very, he's not very much of the, uh, the collective kind of politician. So I appreciate your, uh, yeah. Policy walk. That's, that's, that's your true. That's a good one. Walk, it's, your, it's your true calling. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. That yeah. Was it. Well, no, you know, I, I've really enjoyed this, and I think uh, who knows, we might even just have a, a resident uh, environmentalist here because I really enjoyed your perspective on all things environmentalism, and uh, yeah, it was just really great to touch base with you. But uh, yeah. a couple more questions before you go. I'm just sure. something I ask everybody is, yeah, what types of things do you do to connect with nature? How do you kind of tap into uh, you know into nature and find your center? for health and happiness? Yeah, I'm really lucky to live in my hometown, the place I was born. Uh, I was born in London, Ontario. Um, growing up here, couldn't wait to leave. Um, was uh, really lucky to live all over Canada for many years. Uh, and then found myself back in London, Ontario as a dad with kids. Um, but I live in one of the most remarkable, beautiful places, I think, in Canada. I, I really do think that there's a lot of... Uh, really interesting uh, things that I get to see every day um, in my hometown, the place that I was born and come from that uh, really keep me connected to nature. And uh, specifically, it's the Medway Creek. So I, I just have it uh, stones throw away from my backyard here and I can uh, pop down there, go fishing with my son. Uh, I, we were out hunting salamanders uh, last night as well. Uh, you know, see all kinds of creatures. Uh, saw a Blackburnian warbler last week. That was really cool. A pair of Blackburnian warblers okay. uh, migrating up from Central America, passing through on their way to the boreal. So those sorts of things, you know, the ability to see uh, weather and to notice uh, the flow of water and think about interconnection. Those are the kinds of things, I guess, that keep me uh, kind of grounded on the day to day. Took a lot of years to realize that, though. I got lost along the way a few times. <laughs> hey, well, that's that's so awesome that you can say that about your hometown. Because um, I'm two hours south of you from like the Windsor Essex area, just south of Detroit. Um, for the international listener, and yeah, it's you get up into London, you've got hills, you've got it's it's uh, London, Canada is the forest city for the listener that doesn't know as well. So I mean, yeah, and actually, uh, that's maybe where you do look familiar there. Brennan, maybe uh, maybe we cross paths on the old Medway trails there because that was definitely yeah. right near yeah, my, my old place. So, um, awesome. but yeah, it is such a beautiful beautiful city to live in for sure. So thanks for that. But uh, yeah, last question is: What is your wildest dream for the Earth? We're in this interesting time. Uh, you've researched environmental issues galore for many many years. Um, you know, you have interesting perspectives here and are looking for different ways of knowing right now. So yeah, what exactly would you say is your wildest dream for the earth? Jeez, that's a really tough question. I, th I think it would just be to have that point of light of uh, consciousness that we've been talking about here today as a, as a commonly held value for all humanity, you know, and uh, it felt there when the, when the pandemic was really getting ramped up uh, at the end of March and April, there was just this quiet that kind of fell. I'm not sure if you guys noticed it, but I just had this yes. feeling of quiet that came and, you know, you could really see the stars in a different way and uh, you didn't hear planes and the traffic quieted, you know, and, and like when you have those experiences, because if things were feeling really frantic before all of that, you know, like, you know, a lot of uncertainties and frantic and all this, but then there's this sort of calm that came about. And I think that like it's in those times where you have the clarity of mind to then start to like put things in perspective philosophically and think about things in a different way. And I guess that would be my wish is that like people have the opportunity and the privilege to experience that in their lives, to have the ability to 
to reflect on those things because it can be humbling, right? And, and, it, and I think that's really what we need is a lot of humility. Well said. I and I can I can definitely say I felt that quietness as well, and yeah. I'm sure you, you as well, Richard. And I think that's what happens when your when your mom sends you to your room to think about what you've done. There's that point <laughs> where you say, "Oh, that's what it is," and then everything just kind of sinks and quiets, and you can accept it and go forward, right? So maybe maybe that's yeah. what that quiet was. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope. I, 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 I'm glad you like that one. I, I have to give the the uh, full disclosure credit <laughs> to Facebook uh, memes uh, for that one. I, I uh, can't think. Those memes, <laughs> the time of memes and, and viruses and things. So anyways, <laughs> but... Uh, viral meme, there you go. Yeah, yeah, right. There's been a lot of those for sure. Well, Brennan, this has been awesome. I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, I hope you had fun here with us. I'd love to have you back on the show again to discuss future issues or any other interesting works that you have coming down the pipeline. Uh, let people know where exactly they can find you or uh, if there's any type of like social media or y- your work at Western University. Yeah, best thing to do is just drop me an email at bvogel at uwo.ca, B-V-O-G-E-L at uwo.ca. Um, that's my uh, that's my go-to. And uh, I teach uh, planning and management in the graduate program at uh, the Center for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Western Ontario, so you can find me there. Mm-hmm. I also teach an introductory geography course at, uh, at King's College uh, in, in London as well. So happy to connect. Uh, I'm on social medias there as well. On the LinkedIn, you can look me up. And uh, happy to talk about climate change or, or whatever else people are interested in. For sure. Yeah, well, we'll definitely uh, throw that stuff in the show notes as well so people can know where to find you. But yeah, we really appreciate it. And I appreciate all you guys listening out there. Please share this episode with a friend if you know someone that would like to listen. I would greatly appreciate that. And if you have an extra minute, head on over to uh, Apple, Spotify, any of those platforms where the podcast is and leave a rating and review. Thanks so much, guys, and stay wild. Thank you for listening to the Rewild My Bio podcast. Please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate it if you shared the show with your friends, if of course you think they would like it. You can also visit rewildmybio.com to download previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter. In the newsletter, I share blogs and bonus content from my health promotion research, along with practical tips to help you rewild in a modern world. Please follow along on Instagram and Facebook at Rewild My Bio and on Twitter at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, stay wild.